We're in Daniel 3 today, and if you grew up in church like I did, if you had good parents like I had who taught you Bible stories, or you went to Sunday school, this is probably one of your favorite stories. And so we're, we're going to be talking about Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and their biggest adventure. We're going to talk about what genuine faith really looks like. When, I was, when Carrie and I had been married a few months, I was involved in a car wreck in Houston on Shepherd Street. It was a really major wreck. There were three cars involved. Uh, I was not injured, but my car was pretty crumpled up, the front end at least. And this was my first real experience with a big wreck. And so when I got my check from the, from the uh, insurance company, I was told, just take this to the body shop. They'll know what to do. So I went to the nearest body shop. And the guy there uh, took my check, which, again, it's been a few years, but I think it was $1,700. That's the figure that sticks in my mind. And he looked at it and he said, yeah, $1,700, I, I can order parts from Ford, they'll get here, I will fix it, and that'll be done. Or I can order replacement parts made by someone not Ford Motor Company, they'll look the same, and the whole job will only cost 1000 and you can keep the 700 left over. Well, I am a tightwad, just so you know. That's the way I was born. Um, and plus, Carrie and I together, as when we first got married, we were working jobs that I'm pretty sure we didn't add up to over $30,000. And so we were pretty poor ourselves, and we were about to get even more poor, if that's a term, because I was heading off to, we were heading off to Fort Worth in, in May to go to seminary. And so $700 sounded like a lot of money. So I chose option B. And at first, I thought I had made the absolute right choice, made out like a bandit because out comes this car, looks as good as new, shiny black hood on it, like it had never, no accident had ever happened. Uh, but then we move off to Fort Worth. I think we probably spent that $700 all on the move. And then within months, certainly before the year was out, my shiny black hood had faded into a dingy gray hood. And so I drove a two-toned car for the rest of the time I owned that vehicle. And it was a constant reminder that if you, if you go with the counterfeit version, you can get away with it for a while, but not forever. Eventually, you'll wish, you'll wish you had waited for the real thing. There's nothing like the genuine article, and that's certainly the case when it comes to faith. And I'm not even talking about non-Christian faiths. I'm not even talking about uh, other, other religions here. I'm talking about the, the way you, uh, you have your relationship with God, the way you place your faith in Christ matters. Now, there are counterfeit gospels that Christians believe in all the time. Last week, we talked about one that we called legalism, where we elevate rules and rituals above grace, where it's not about a, a love relationship between me and the Father. It's about me performing. But I want to talk about a different one today. It's the, what I would say the most powerful counterfeit faith in the church today. And that is the idea that the whole purpose of Christianity, the whole reason you go to church, the whole reason you pray, is to get God to give you the life you want. The right spouse and the right, right finances and the right, the right circumstances, the right job, the right finances and the right healthy body. God will give you all of that if you do things the right way. Some of us call it the prosperity gospel, and it certainly is prosperous for the people who are writing those books and who are standing on TV and telling you, send me your money and God will bless you. It certainly is prosperous for them. 
I don't know how many other people it works for. And I could stand here and I could talk about different things that we hear this preacher or that preacher on television say and how that doesn't really add up to Scripture or it's quasi-spiritual. In other words, you can, you can find that in the Bible, but not when you put it all in context. I could, we could talk about this megachurch or that megachurch where the members never get the Word of God and so they're not growing in discipleship. And that would make us all feel really good because we love to point fingers at other denominations and other churches and feel like we're the ones who have all the truth. And that's not the case. The truth is, it's not just people who believe in that whole word of faith, name it and claim it, prosperity, health and wealth gospel, who have a problem with this particular version of counterfeit faith. I believe a lot of us, including us Baptists, a lot of us have a very transactional idea of what faith looks like. And when I say transactional, what I mean is, okay, God, I do these things, therefore you will do these things. Okay, God, I I go to church on Sundays even when I don't want to, even when it's a nice day outside, even when I would rather sleep in. I I, I do my best to avoid these certain vices that I know you hate. I I pray, I tithe, I do all these things. So now, now that I'm I got this big doctor's appointment this week, and I don't know what they're going to say. You're going to come through for me, right, Lord? Now that my teenage son or daughter is going off the rails, and and I want them to get straightened out, you're going to bring them back to me, right, Lord? Now that my mom or my dad is in the hospital, and they're sick, and I can't afford to lose, you're going to to heal them, right? My job situation's kind of unstable, but I'm not going to get laid off, right? Because you take care of your own, don't you? I mean, I've, I've, I've squarely placed myself under your authority, So you're going to come through for me, right? This is what I'm talking about. If you've ever seen the movie The Godfather, and let's not lie, some of us have seen that movie, right? Especially us men. The way the movie opens, a lot of us forget, the movie opens with a close-up on a man who is speaking in English, but with a heavy Italian accent, talking about how He loves America. He's so glad he lives here. He loves the ideals this country stands for. And the the shot widens out and you realize he's in an office. And it's the office of the Godfather himself, Don Corleone. It's it's the the Godfather's wedding, the daughter's wedding day. And so this, this man has come to ask the Godfather for a favor. And he talks about how, I love America, but recently when my daughter was attacked and beaten and raped, I went to the police because that's what good Americans do. They don't take the law into their own hands. They go to the police and they let them handle it, but the police didn't do anything for me. So now I'm coming to you, Don Corleone. Would you, would you punish these men? Because I can't stand the thought that they're out there walking around freely and, and they don't have to pay for what they did. And the Godfather says to him, well, why have you never tried to be my friend before today? You've never, you've never invited me into your home. You've never sent me a gift. You've never even called me Godfather like all my closest friends do. So why now? You know, if you would have been my friend, those men would already be dead. And you realize he's not talking about friendship like you and I would say friendship. He's talking about, you need to pay homage to me. You need to do what I tell you. When I call on you, you need to show up and, and do whatever I ask you to do. I, I will ask favors of you and you deliver. And if you're one of my people, then I'll take care of you. He says, listen, if if you become my friend, then people will fear you. And the scene ends with the man kissing the Godfather's ring. And I'm here to tell you that the version of faith that a lot of us Christians believe in is dangerously close to making God into a mob boss. I serve Him for what He gives me. 
I, I worship him. I pay homage to him. I obey his commands as best I can because I'm afraid to live in this world without some kind of strong protection over me. That's why I serve God. It's a very transactional relationship. And that is not biblical faith. I'm not saying you're not saved. That's not my call. I'm saying you're not enjoying the relationship with God you were meant to live. And you're not showing the world what real faith looks like. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, in this story, they do. Now let me sum up what has happened in the meantime since the last time we talked. Remember Daniel chapter 1? We saw Daniel and his three friends. Their Jewish names were Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael. They had been abducted into this land of Babylon. They were placed into this school to train up the eunuchs who would serve the king of Babylon. And they were given this rich food and wine to eat and drink that came straight from the table of the king. And those four Jewish boys felt like this is not proper for us to have. And so they took a stand for holiness. We're going to eat vegetables. We're going to drink water. We're going to separate ourselves from the others. Not out of pride, not because we think we're better, but because our God is the one true God and we must serve Him. And at the end of the story, you remember in the end of chapter 1, everyone was amazed that their road made sense. Their stand for holiness had changed the whole dynamic of that school. And then in chapter 2, which we're not going to look at, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has a very vivid and disturbing dream. A dream that is so real, he knows this is something supernatural. This has come down from the gods. This is some kind of sign. And so he calls on all of his astrologers and his magicians and his counselors and his advisors, and he gathers them all together. He says, listen, I know the gods have, they're trying to tell me something, but I want to know what they're saying. And I want to make sure that the interpretation comes from them and not you. So I'm not even going to tell you what the dream was. I want you to tell me what I dreamed and what it means. And all the advisors as one man, they say, oh, King live forever, but no man on earth can do what you're asking. And Nebuchadnezzar says, well, then what, are, what do I even have you guys for? I'm going to put you all to death. Because when you're the king, you can do those sorts of things. And Daniel steps up, this young kid's fresh out of school, wet behind the ears, and says, oh, king, live forever. They're right. No human can do what you're asking, but the God I believe in can. And he has told me what your dream is. And he proceeds to tell Nebuchadnezzar, here's what you dreamed. And Nebuchadnezzar says, yeah, you're absolutely right. And Daniel says, here's what it means. It's, it's a prediction of the coming kingdoms that will come after your kingdom is gone. There will be the Persians, and then after them will be the Greeks, and then after them will be the Romans, and then on and on through history until finally God will send his Messiah, and the great final king will come into this world and make this world what it was meant to be. And Nebuchadnezzar is amazed. He's blown away. He says, I want this guy, this guy who has the spirit of the living God inside of him, I want him to rule my kingdom. And he makes him essentially his prime minister. And yet, even though Nebuchadnezzar has seen two separate incidences that have shown him the power of the God of Israel, he's still a pagan. He still believes in the gods of his youth. And so at the start of Daniel chapter 3, he orders them to build a golden statue of a god, we assume, of the god Nebo. The Bible doesn't tell us, but Nebo was the god that Nebuchadnezzar was named for. So if you can picture that somewhat handsome guy, if you can picture him 90 feet tall and gold, right, kind of like an evil golden Santa, 
right? Um, and standing out in the plain of Dura in what is modern-day Iraq today, he builds this statue, and he calls on all the rulers from every corner of his empire. Eight different categories of rulers are summoned. They come in all their pomp and all their finery. Special music has been composed for this occasion. When they get there, Nebuchadnezzar tells them how the proceedings will, well, proceed. So once the music begins, when you hear the first notes of the song, you are to hit the dirt with your knees first, bow your head to the ground, bow before my idol. Because you see, the problem is, I, I, I lead a religiously and ethically diverse empire, and I'm not even going to try to make you stop worshiping your gods, but you darn well better worship mine. So add him onto the list. Here's your chance to show your allegiance to me. So the music starts, everyone bows. Congratulations, thank you for coming, enjoy your hors d'oeuvres, and make sure and take your framed picture of Nebuchadnezzar home with you on your way back to your home district. But there's a problem. When all those heads go down, there's three little heads that stay popped up. Three little Jewish heads belonging to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And everyone sees them. You think those boys felt conspicuous? Think they felt looked at? It says nothing about Daniel in Daniel chapter 3. We assume he wasn't even there. He's the prime minister. He was, not, he was not required to show up at this event, but we can be sure if he'd been there, he wouldn't have bowed either. What we know is these three boys had a tough decision to make, and they chose to put their trust in God. They chose to say, we're going to, just like we did in Daniel 1, but this time the stakes are higher. We're not, just, we're not just saying no to filet mignon and lobster and wine. We're placing ourselves in a position that we could be executed. And sure enough, that's what happens in verse 13. Look at verse 13. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in furious rage, commanded that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego be brought. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said to them, Is it true, O Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you're ready when you hear the sound of the horn, pipe, trigon, lyre, harp, bagpipe, and every kind of music to fall down and worship the image I have made, well and good. But if you do not worship, you shall immediately be cast into a burning, fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? Those are famous last words, aren't they? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace and He will deliver us out of your hand, O King. But if not, be it known to you, O King, that we will not serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Now we find verse 17 amazing. That's right, isn't it? Yeah, verse 17. We look at that and we say, that's true faith. You're, you're just a young man. You've got your hands tied behind your back. You're standing in front of the most powerful man on earth, a man who can snap his fingers, put you to death. You can feel the heat of that furnace from where you're standing. And you're thinking, of all the ways I want to die, I don't want to burn to death. And yet you're able to say, yes, king, we serve you. But our one true king is the Lord our God. We're going, to, we're going to obey Him, and He can rescue us. He can rescue us. That's faith, right? But I tell you, verse 18 is genuine faith. It takes a lot of faith to say God can work a miracle. But verse 18, where they say, but if not. 
It takes a lot of faith to say, I know God can heal me. I know God can deliver me. I know God can do anything He wants. That takes a lot of faith. But it takes genuine faith to say, but even if He doesn't, we're still not going to bow. What Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were saying is, we know God can rescue us. We just don't know if He will. But either way, it doesn't change what we're going to do. You see, counterfeit faith, cheap faith says, okay, Lord, you better come through for me. If you're really God, you're going to rescue me. I'm counting on you for a miracle. Why have I been going to church all this time if you're not going to show up for me now? That's counterfeit faith. Genuine faith says, Lord, you know I need a miracle right now. And I know you're able to give one. And so I'm asking for that now. And I'm believing that you can give it to me if you choose. But if you don't choose to, I believe your way is better than mine. Even if it leads to short-term pain for me, I know it ultimately issues in salvation and glory and deliverance and beauty. So I trust in you. Lord, I choose your path, whatever that means. And that kind of faith is the kind of faith that cannot be conquered, that cannot be destroyed, that outlasts any individual, any government, any ruler, any circumstance. That is genuine faith. And what does that look like today? What does that look like today? Because let's face it, we don't live in a society where we're likely to face a choice like like Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego did. Thank God we live in a society in America with freedoms where we probably will never be faced with the choice of, okay, either deny Christ or die. There are people, there are Christians that face choices like that in our world today. More today than ever in human history. And we should know that and we should pray for them. But we can be thankful we don't face those choices and yet we still need genuine faith. We need genuine faith because there's going to be that day when we say, I wish my wife loved me like she used to. I wish we had what we used to have in our marriage. Lord, I'm praying that You would reignite our love for one another. But Lord, even if she never changes the way she feels about me, even if we never get back what we used to have, Lord, help me to be faithful to her. And help me to do a better job of meeting her needs and being the husband that she needs and loving her as You love Your church. That's genuine faith. It's, it's the teenager who says, you know, Lord, there, I, I wish I had more friends and I know I'd be a lot more popular if I would just compromise morally in this one area over here. But, but Lord, I trust in you. And so I pray that you would give me some friends and give me some support. But in the meantime, even if that never materializes, even if I'm the least popular kid on my campus, I choose to follow you. Give me strength. Give me encouragement. Help me to see the fruits of obedience. It's when you hear that bad news from your doctor and you go home and you say, Lord, I need a miracle. The doctor has said there's no hope, but I know that with you there's always hope. So I'm praying for a miracle. I'm praying for that day when I walk in and the doctor says, I have no idea what happened to your illness. It's gone. And and I'm praying that that would happen. But even if it doesn't, Lord, I'm trusting in you that you will give me the strength to to experience joy and peace in the midst of pain. And and if this disease ends up killing me, Lord, I'd rejoice in that because I know that if I live and if I'm healed, then I can praise you for healing. But if not, then I'm where I always wanted to be. I win either way. Disease and death cannot defeat me because I'm your child. And help me to walk in that hope and let others see that hope in me. 
And you may say, well, Jeff, I could never have that kind of faith. I just, I wasn't born that way. I'm a natural born warrior. I'm a natural born control freak. Or I, I just, I just never have had that kind of faith. And I'm here to tell you, faith is not like being left handed or being tall or having blue eyes or red hair. It's not something you're born with. It's not something you have or you don't. It's something you choose. Faith is a choice. It's the choice you make when you say, I trust you. I trust you, God. We exercise faith every time we go have a surgical procedure. We have faith that that doctor is going to take care of us. We exercise faith every time we get in a car with someone else who's driving. We exercise faith every time we drop our kids off in the church nursery or at a daycare center or with a babysitter. We exercise faith. It's just choosing to trust in God with the circumstances of your life. Can you do that? Will you do that? I know you can, but will you? See, the story, the way it goes, and and some of you know this story, most of you probably do, as inspiring as Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego were to me. But if not, we still still will not bow down to your idols, O king. Nebuchadnezzar was thoroughly unimpressed. He ordered the furnace heated seven times hotter than usual. The men who he recruited to carry these three boys and throw them into the fire, perished from their contact with that heat when the door was open. Picture that that steel door sliding upward. I don't know if it was steel, but let's just say. Metal door sliding upward, throwing those boys inside. Nebuchadnezzar stands there watching. How sick is that? And then he's astonished to see those boys are not writhing around in the flames. They're not screaming in pain. Instead, they're up and walking around. And even more so, there's a fourth person in the fire. And Nebuchadnezzar says, wait, didn't we just throw three guys into the flames? I mean, my math may be off, but I thought there were just three. And and his advisors will say, yes, sir, there were only three. And he says, well, then why do I see a fourth? And the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar had no category in his head for the idea of a God who could become human. But we do. His name is Jesus. That's who was in that fire with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Now, can I prove that from Daniel 3? No, I cannot. Let me ask you, who's your next best choice? Who's the second most qualified person to be in the fire unharmed with those three? Can you name anyone? Keep in mind, Superman don't exist. It was Jesus. It was our God who came and walked through the fire with them. And then they stepped out of the flames, unharmed, not only not dead, but not even burned, not even singed. Their clothes didn't even smell smoky. I love that Daniel tells us that detail. The only thing that had changed about them was the bonds The the ropes that bound their hands were mysteriously burned. Now that's what I call God showing off. Yeah, I'll let you get burned. Just those flames. Just those those ropes around your wrists. Otherwise, you'll be fine. And Nebuchadnezzar is blown away. This is now the third time he has seen the power of Almighty God. And he praises God there beside the furnace. But let me tell you, he's still not yet a believer. And this is instructive for us. Because many of us hopefully... All of us have a list of people we're praying for who don't yet know our Savior like we do. 
people who we're hoping they'll come home to Him, and we're praying for their salvation, and we're, we're taking every opportunity to, to say words to them, to speak, of them, speak to them of what Christ has done for us. And, and maybe it's been years for you. Maybe you've thought, you know, I thought a long time ago this person would come to Christ after all the times I've prayed and all the conversations we've had, and it's been frustrating for you. Notice, Nebuchadnezzar sees three separate miracles, and he's still not a believer yet. Now, next week, chapter 4, everything changes for Nebuchadnezzar. It takes a, his life turning upside down, and we're going to read Nebuchadnezzar, um, Daniel 4, written by Nebuchadnezzar himself, the only chapter of the Bible written by a pagan ruler. But in the meantime, just know, don't give up on that person. Don't give up on that neighbor, that coworker, that loved one, that friend. Keep praying for them. Keep sharing with them. Keep loving them. God is working in their hearts. It just takes time. It was 19 years ago this month that I became the senior pastor of South Avenue Baptist Church in Pasadena, Texas. It's a wonderful little church. Great, great people there. I still love and miss them. Uh, but I followed a pastor there who had been there 18 years, a man named Meredith Hare. And we used to laugh because uh, people used to think, oh, you're that Baptist church that has a woman pastor. No, actually, Meredith was a man. Um, he was a little bitty guy, even compared to a strapping masculine specimen like me. Um, little short guy with flaming red hair and, and, and big booming voice. And just a real servant-hearted shepherd pastor type. People loved him. And after I'd been there for about a year, Meredith passed away suddenly. And I got to walk with the church through the process of grieving his loss. Um, and then a, a few more years passed. And one day, we got a phone call from one of the church members. And she uh, had recently lost a loved one. And she said, could you send me a copy of Meredith's sermon that he preached when your Janelle died? See, his wife, Georgianelle, had passed away uh, 10 or 12 years before, very, very suddenly. And the church had given Meredith as much time off as he wanted. He actually came back after two weeks. He said, I just can't stay away. And his first sermon back in the pulpit was titled, Things I Learned in the Dark. And our associate pastor, Jim Overton, who had been there for years and is still there today, uh, he went hunting through all the cassette tapes. Yes, there were cassette tapes back then. It was very interesting. So... Stupid format, but still. Uh, that found, he found this cassette tape with the label so old that it was yellow and peeling off. And we, we decided to listen to it first to make sure it still worked before we tried duplicating it. And so we put it right there in the office. We put it in the tape player. We hit play. And me and Jim and Donna Bell, our, our secretary, just sat and listened. Had a lot of things to do that day. It was a very busy work day. But we just sat there for 30 minutes and listened to Brother Meredith talk. Things I learned in the dark. This is one of the more moving experiences I've ever had. I mean, this was powerful. And you might say, well, Jeff, why would this woman, why would she ask for a sermon by somebody who's now dead instead of from you, her pastor? Maybe you're not wondering that. But if you are, the answer I would give you is because he had been through the fire. See, I'd never lost a spouse. He had. He knew what she was going through. When you go through the fire in this life, whatever fire it might be, financial, health-related, relational, emotional, mental illness, brush with death, no matter what it is, God has been there. In the form of Jesus Christ, He has walked in your shoes. He knows your pain. 
And when the biggest fire of your life occurred, when the wrath of God was poured out on this earth to destroy sin and death once and for all, at the cross of Jesus Christ, He took the flames. Not you. And not me. The cross brings us only victory. And as that song we sang says, we're free, free, forever we're free. Come join in the song of all the redeemed. And that's why we can trust Him. When you walk out today, I hope that you don't feel a burden. I hope that you don't feel like, man, Jeff's asking me to trust God for some things. I just, I don't know if I can. I hope you walk out saying, I can trust this God. I can trust Him because He's walked through the fire with me and He always, always, always will.